Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now, science has shown that the best way to help our children become independent, confident, kind, empathetic, and happy is by talking to them. Thank goodness this is true since we've been discussing talking with kids about all different topics since 2017 on this com- on this podcast. However, so often parents and educators and caregivers are at a loss and have trouble communicating with children. Conversations can feel trivial or forced or strained or worse, can drum up and become marked by constant conflict and butting heads. So how can we get in the habit of having meaningful conversations with kids of all ages. How do we spark curiosity, foster empathy, encourage kids to embrace challenges through talking with kids? And given the need for much more understanding about issues of gender and race and sexuality and different family structures, how do we engage in discussions that can celebrate differences while also understanding and being empathetic to how those differences might be treated in this world? For all of this, we have the pleasure of interacting with Rebecca Rowland today. Rebecca Givens Rowland is an oral and written language specialist in the neurology department of Children's Hospital Boston and a lecturer at Harvard University. As a nationally certified speech language pathologist, she has worked clinically with populations ranging from early childhood through high school and provided teacher professional development. As faculty and module director at Harvard Medical School, she lectures on topics of communication, mental focus, and creativity. She frequently consults with organizations working to design powerful learning experiences for kids and adults, including the World Bank. She has an EDD from the Harvard Graduate School of Education, an MS in Speech Language Pathology, and an MA in English from Boston University, and a BA in English from Yale. She lives in Boston, Massachusetts with her husband and two children and can be found at RebeccaRoland.com. Welcome, Rebecca Roland, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. But before we get into the bulk of the conversation, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested in the art and skill of talking with children? Yeah, so actually I started out even back in high school writing poetry and being really fascinated by the power of language and communication. And as I actually grew older and had kids, I was so fascinated by how language developed in children and how the back and forth of conversation can really be so powerful in building our relationships. Mm, So interesting. Thank you. And 
So I, I, I read your book, uh, the, the art of talking with children. And I, I think that there's, there's so much to discuss there. I, I also was reading, there was one area I was reading. I think you're correct. Sometimes it can be hard for parents and educators to talk to kids about all different kinds of conversations, all, all different discussions, um, where there's a back and forth and a learning and a growing. So to orient us before we dive in, can you finish this sentence? Engaging in quality conversation with children or rich talk, as you call it, is so important because? Yes, uh, because it will enhance your relationships in the moment. So you have more fun and joy in your relationships and also build children's skills over the long term. Excellent. Excellent. So in the beginning of the book, you highlight a conversation about adoption, which is interesting for me on two accounts right now. I'm writing my chapter on talking to kids about different family structures for my forthcoming book. That's one mm -hmm. of my chapters and I'm writing it right now. <laughs> um, and specifically the section on adoption. And my husband and I adopted both of our kids. So one of the issues around adoption that research highlights is the loss that kids can feel when they don't look like their parents or siblings in their family. Mm -hmm. And they may wonder if they don't know or they have a closed adoption or a transracial adoption, who in their birth family they do look like. And in the story you tell, the girl is lamenting that she is the only one with red hair in her family, to which her mom replies, and I'm the only one who has glasses. And her dad replies, and I'm the only one who's bald. So how does this illustrate the power of communication and the simplicity that we're able to embrace? Yeah, so I think that obviously adoption, especially, yeah, is a very complex subject at Definitely. any age. And so I didn't mean in that conversation that it was meant to be taken lightly. So certainly there's a lot that can be discussed and needs to be unpacked around that sense of loss and even grief over not knowing um, your birth parents. Um, but at the same time, I think recognizing that there is the sense of belonging that you can talk about and can embrace through everyone's uniqueness and seeing that, well, yes, you may be the only one with these characteristics, but I'm the only one like this. Um, and we can sort of all enjoy each other in the moment as well. So I think that was really the point I'm making there. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Excellent. So um, can you tell us what this whole idea of rich talk is, as you call it? What, what are the components of rich talk? Yeah. So I really think about it as having three main components, which I'm calling the ABCs of rich talk. Um, and A really stands for adaptive, meaning that you're really going with the flow of who your child is, either at that moment or in the longer term. So if your child's in a bad mood, for example, you might shift the way you talk, the way you interact, and you might even shift over time. If you see, for example, your child doesn't ever talk in the car, but they talk you know, if you're on long walks or something like that. So you're being flexible and responding to them. Uh, and B stands for the back and forth. So really that you're working together to have a conversation and there's a balance of talk and silence. So there's not the sense of talking at someone, but it's really back and forth. And C, just being child-driven. So you're really starting with what is on a child's mind. And that could be positive or neutral or negative. So it could be anything that excites them, but also that worries them or you know, makes them feel upset. So whatever they're sort of focused on at the moment, you're really interested in exploring that alongside them. 
this this whole idea of rich talk and also the actual the talk that we just had about adoption it kind of reminded me of the conversation about mistakes a little later in the book and how your daughter who never wanted to admit mistakes benefited from you and your husband talking about your mistakes for the day can you tell us about that and what we can learn about that exchange in regard to communication between adults, caregivers, parents, and kids? Yes, definitely. So in that conversation, uh, we actually started at dinner time talking about what each of us had made as a mistake and how we tried to fix it. So whether or not that worked and also what we might do the next time. So I'm in this, I was really making sure that it didn't have to be big or hard or heavy. And that's kind of going back to that adoption conversation. The same thing there that we don't actually have to have you know, a big, heavy conversation every time. So the mistake conversation can be something even silly, like, oh, I took the elevator to the wrong floor, or, you know, I drank water and I thought it was milk or something like that. Um, but it really lets kids know that everybody's in this together so that we're all on a journey. We're all, if we're trying anything, we are making mistakes and that we can sort of analyze them and learn from them. So we, we've talked a bit on this podcast about Carol Dweck's work, um, the power of yet, mindset, mindset shifts to build confidence. And given that we were just talking about mistakes, it kind of just goes right into that. I'd love to discuss this whole idea with regard to how this information can help build conversations that help cultivate confidence in kids. So how can we use conversation to promote growth and exploration while allowing for mistakes and failure, especially in kids who seem nervous to try new things. Definitely, yeah. So I think it is all about promoting what is called a mastery approach. So the idea that actually learning mistake making is part of the journey is necessary and helpful um, and that we can actually set our own goals and celebrate partially meeting those goals even if we are inevitably not going to succeed all the time or inevitably going to fail part way or need to stop and regroup um, and so part of what i think about is really supporting kids to be their own judges and set their own goals. So for example, if they show a drawing, you might wanna talk about kind of what they are most proud of in the drawing or what they felt uh, took the most effort rather than always feeling like you're the one um, being the judge saying how pretty or not pretty it is. Okay, and then how do we refrain then from over encouraging or over praising when our kids seem to be looking to us for feedback? Yes, I do think it's sort of starting with small steps. I think it's interesting, if you look at some of the research, it really does show that overpraising, especially for kids who already have low self-esteem, can actually make them feel worse about themselves because mm -hmm. it feels comes across kind of as hollow. Um, so they say, oh, I feel even, you know, that you're doing that to cover something up. Uh, so recognizing at first that that overpraising actually can be detrimental even though it's meant obviously with good intentions um, and that really trying as much as possible just to shift the balance over to them to sort of make yourself your own judge and make yourself your own kind of beacon of value rather than always saying oh great job or oh it's fine or you know whatever you would say otherwise so what might that sound like, even in this example that you were giving, that a child comes over and shows you, 
his or her drawing and you say, tell me what not to say versus what to say. Yeah, so I mean, I think it obviously depends on the child and the family, so it's hard to have a specific script, mm -hmm. but I, I might say, for example, you know, tell me more about it. So just something very open-ended to hear what the child has to say, or or even what's the story in this drawing, you know, mm -hmm. so to hear kind of the child make a narrative about it. Um, and if the child says, you know, do you like it? Or, or what do you think? Um, you know, certainly to be positive, I, you know, is, is fine. But um, I might say something, especially about, oh, you know, I, I really like how you tried all the colors that you had, or I liked how, you know, it seems like you, something that may be different about what they tried um, rather than, you know, just something that you think is pretty. So I think mm -hmm. maybe not to say making those value judgments. So, oh, it's great or, or something that's very vague like that, but to be as specific as possible and focused as much as possible on the effort or the process rather than the product. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know that you ask a lot of questions in your book and, and it, I imagine it could be helpful here to be asking things like, you know, what made you choose orange for this? Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, who is this over here? It, exactly. That, that would engage in conversation, correct? Yes, definitely. So I think all those process type questions are great. Just things about what were your choices, even what were you most proud of? You know, or what did you like or not like about this? Um, and, and I think modeling that, you know, we, when we make something ourselves, we can feel mixed feelings about it. So we can say, oh, I like this part, this part I might want to do differently next time. And that's okay. It's not a black and white kind of all or nothing. You know, I love it or I hate it. It can be somewhere in between. So modeling that for kids is also really important. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So we have uh, educators and coaches and parents on uh, listening in on this podcast. And I know I get a lot of questions around kids and mental blocks um, because a lot of kids are in theater or they're in sports or they're in some kind of music where it can it can come about. I I have one friend who came to me recently. Her daughter is a gifted gymnast, even at six years old. She's just light years ahead of her same mm -hmm. age peers flipping around as sassy as ever yes. <laughs> lately she's been dealing with a mental block she no longer can do her back walk over even though she can do back flips you know right now all of a sudden she can't do her back walk over she was fully able to do it last week but not now so for children who have mental blocks like this in sports or on stage or in the classroom what can we say and what skills can we use in a conversation to bring them through a mental block and get unstuck, as you say in the book, and help them to work through it and maybe even get to the other side? Yeah, so I think there's a few key components, and one of them really does involve um, visualizing, so really supporting them to create a picture of themselves as someone who is resilient and as someone who can succeed at what they want to succeed at. Um, so really talking them through things like, okay, let's imagine yourself doing the back walkover. What would happen first? You know, what would, how would it look if you got the right moves? What would you need to do? What exactly? So really walking them through very specifically and helping them feel those things. Um, oftentimes I've also used just a mental strategy of creating a peaceful space mentally with kids, because oftentimes 
we can't actually go to a beach or go to somewhere, mm. you know, that's creating sort of a sense of peace or security, but helping them visualize that as a moment to kind of regroup and move away from that sense of panic or fear they might be feeling can be really important. So even to draw all of the senses. So think about a place that you, you know, was very beautiful to you or that you felt very at peace or secure. Let's think about how it smelled, how it looked, how it tasted, and really bring all of that, helping them have that mental image as a way to refocus their attention can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. And I know in your book, one of the skills that you use is is kind of like a perspective taking, like the aerial view. Would, mm-hmm. would that be something that you might be able to use at this point too? Yes, definitely. So I think first um, considering how it might look and feel to make that happen, and then also to look at other people. So take the perspective of you know, an Olympic gymnast, how are they feeling? How are they, you know, what are they dealing with in terms of their own fear? And recognizing, I think also normalizing the fact that everyone does have, um, you know, blocks or even just feelings of fear or anxiety before they start something, but that we can actually work through those and relax into them and feel them um, and using others as examples. So using somebody who might be very successful and saying, you know, well, this person probably felt X and Y way, um, but they, what did they do to get over it? So helping them recognize that others need coping strategies, that that's a very normal thing mm-hmm. um, and that we can develop those sort of each of us can develop our own. I know that when my daughter has had some of those fears uh, we've we've settled into some question asking that I think also applies here and that you cover in different ways in your book. And our question is often, what would make you feel more brave and less scared? Mm-hmm. Um, and and helping to just even like the little things like I, I would want you to stand over here or. Um, I would want somebody to spot me this way mm-hmm. um, or say this, or I, I, I need to do it over here instead of over there because I'm worried about the stare or whatever it is right. that might be getting there. Because those little things, there could be a lot of little things getting mm-hmm. in the way rather than maybe one big thing. Is that correct? Exactly. Definitely. So yeah, we think about sort of helping kids with two aspects. So the predictability aspect of things and control. Um, And so really supporting either of those two things through conversation is really key. Just as you say, sort of what could I make that's more under my control? So, Mm. you know, it might be that I would feel that if you, if I knew you were standing here, I would have that as my touch point. Or if I knew that You know, I had my particular socks that would make me feel, at least in this moment, you know, I would feel sort of more in control and Mm -hmm. recognizing that those small things, it's not like they're magic or anything like that, but they they can provide a sense of security for anyone, but especially for kids. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So along those lines, but kind of going in a different direction, when we have a lot of kids in, in different activities, engaging in sports or theater or uh, debate team, whatever it is, sometimes we come across uh, the, the issue of quitting. It's controversial. Some people say, you know, quitting is absolutely fine. If you realize that you are unhappy and you're, you don't like something that you should be able mm-hmm. to quit. Other people feel that kids should be going all the way through to the end of a session. Um, others 
feel like they need to commit long term no matter what. So they kind of get through the valley um, that might be getting in the way. Uh, there's there's all different issues that might be um, that kids may be facing some that are absolutely they should be quitting right away when it's like a medical need mm-hmm. or a mental health need um, and other times where, you know, it, it is an issue of maybe some anxiety or mental block that they're getting through. So obviously, many of us have had to deal with the quitting issue with our kids. So you talk about something called the play barometer to make small shifts and allow for conversation that just just doesn't sound like I'm quitting. No, you're not. So can you help us understand this? Yes, definitely. So I think it's so important, just as you say, to really help kids distinguish between what type of wanting to quit are they feeling? (laughs) So Mm. is it something like, oh, I'm feeling incredibly burnt out, I'm physically hurt, or I'm being bullied by my coach, something Mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, this is an immediate issue, Mm -hmm. versus, you know, well, I'm just not sure if I like it anymore, versus, oh, my friends have stopped playing it, you know, versus there's just so many different factors. And really those different factors would lead to different outcomes, potentially, that would be best for the child. Um, So in my book, I really talk about what I call the three E's for rich talk, um, which starts with expanding on a child's thinking. And I think that's especially critical here is really to start to understand expanding and then exploring with the child, um, you know, what is it exactly about this sport or this activity that you're not liking that makes you feel like you're not, you know, you want to quit Um, and going in a back and forth way along with them to embrace their feelings, but also to recognize, well, it might mean very different outcomes depending on the reason. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So if a child is coming to us and saying, I want to quit and we go engage in this kind of conversation that allows us to see that they're unhappy with some aspect of it. Uh, maybe they don't like their coach or their, their, teacher at that moment, or maybe it's, it's something that you discover seems somewhat fixable. Maybe you, you know, you're, maybe there's a switching of a coach, or maybe it's, they're in the middle of a season and they're nervous about an impending performance um, or event Mm -hmm. and you want them to stick with it. Mm -hmm. So then what is the next conversational step that helps them to see that there is a benefit in in staying even though it may be uncomfortable yeah so i think that a lot of that does have to do with this continuing conversation and with a lot of modeling so i think to recognize that kids don't always you know take it to heart if we just say you know it's good to it's good to finish or you know finishing is the right thing to do you know that in that abstract it's really hard for kids to connect with that um so to use examples even whether it's from your own life or from the lives of you know, friends or relatives, you know, to say like, well, I wasn't very good at playing piano and I got really frustrated first. But, um, you know, when I realized I was able to play some pretty complicated pieces, it became really fun for me, you know, but I couldn't do that um, until I had learned some of the more basic skills. So helping children kind of see through that back and forth that there is value in kind of getting to a different level and even asking them potentially, you know, well, what would you like to be able to do in this area? So putting that goal setting over to them also as a question um, and helping them see that as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. 
So let's move to, and we, maybe we can apply this, these three E's and some of your other uh, skills to a different area. One that is very much on the mind of a lot of people, because one of your chapters is on becoming a global citizen. And it's obviously very important to discuss differences so that they are not misconstrued or belittled or ranked as they often are. You talk about a lot of different skills we can use to open up conversations and open minds in particular from, you know, watch out for all or nothing talk, use how, when, where, use those three E's you were just talking about, notice, counter, and personalize. I'd love for you to take us through some of these skills so that we can understand what they sound like and how we can use them to talk about bias and bust stereotypes. Sure, definitely. So yeah, I think it is so critical, especially in today's day and age when there's so many different kinds of differences Mm -hmm. um, to recognize that actually a similar kind of talk can support kids in combating bias and stereotypes across differences. So we don't always see that. We might think, okay, let's work first on, you know, racial or ethnic differences, and then let's work on learning differences. And, you know, there's all these different things you could talk about. But oftentimes, really this cuts across um, differences to help children be more open to difference in general. Um, And so the way I think about that is by starting with some of those three E's. So for example, expanding on children's initial understanding, thinking about, for example, where have they heard a stereotype um, and really helping them name stereotypes. So for example, if, you know, I feel like because I have dyslexia, I'm not smart, you know, well, where have you heard that stereotype? And then recognizing that they might need some education. So it might be that they need some back and forth with you providing some information for them about more factual um, things, but then really exploring that each of us is different in some way. So I think that's the critical point here is that um, maybe your friend has a learning difference that you don't, but you also learn in a different way from everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so helping children see that, well, maybe you are like your friends in this way, but you're not exactly like them. And, and you may be very different in some other way. So really starting with the self and helping children see difference as part of themselves is key in, start, in starting to help combat bias for others. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that sounds like the education aspect of, of the three E's that is really helpful. What about asking questions like, well, you did say, you know, where did you hear that from? What else, what other questions, what might we ask when we hear um, our, our child either asking about stereotypes or declaring a stereotype mm-hmm. like girls don't you know, don't do great in sports or Mm -hmm. whatever it might be. Yeah. So I think there are some really important questions you can ask there. And I think asking questions in that case can be so much more powerful than just saying, no, they don't. (laughs) Um, Because that, yeah, doesn't really do much. Um, But to ask them, for example, you know, why, why they might think that. So have they seen examples of that? But then also, have they seen examples not like that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so looking for the counter examples. That might be among their friends, but also might be, you know, in films and books, you know, on video games. You know, what about this girl? You know, she she seems like she's, you know, 
pretty girly, but she also likes soccer. You know, can you tell me more about how you think about her? Um, mm -hmm. That kind of thing. So really getting into the counter narratives and sort of the counter examples and starting also to help them explore why do they think this stereotype has developed um, and realizing that there might be a context, you know, so something like, oh, well, is, do you think it's because back a while ago, you know, girls weren't allowed to play sports or something, you know, so that's maybe why people got that idea and sort of thinking about that there's a history to how these things develop and considering that along with the child can help them realize it's not really like that, but there is a reason um, that people might think that. Mm. So then you can you can apply that to other areas. I'm thinking like um, kids who may grow up in a lower income area who are stereotyped and made to feel like they're not smart mm -hmm. when perhaps they um, the stereo comes from the certain kids not being able to have access to the education that other kids may have access to. So educating the kids about that kind of background statement. Is that exactly, correct? exactly. Yes. And I've actually done this similarly with, um, sort of, you know, neighborhoods that are in lower income areas. And that sometimes we talk about food deserts when there's not, you know, a lot of fresh, grocery stores and things like that there. Um, and that may lead to, for example, people in those neighborhoods not eating as much fresh food because they don't have access to it. But it's not because they don't want to do it. Um, so even to take your kids out on experiences, so to say, well, let's drive around and look. You know, what if you lived here, you know, what would you have access to? What would be easy to walk to? Um, and helping them realize at a very experiential level, you know, oh yeah, it's actually really hard to get to a grocery store with lots of fresh fruit um, if I lived here. And so to really help them develop both an understanding, but then also empathy for people who might not have all the choices that they have. And that certainly helps with that all or nothing talk to say, you know, all kids who live in a lower income area, all girls who are in sports or whatever, exactly. obviously that is incorrect. And, and when you were mentioning this counter narrative, that maybe even the counter narrative becomes the narrative because it's, it's not even it's not even necessary to have the counter narrative. It right. was just incorrect. <laughs> exactly. Right. right. Okay. Exactly. And even okay. adding nuance. So even feeling like, well, it's not that all low income you know, places have no access to fresh fruit. Some some do, you know, mm -hmm. but not all. So it's sort of even there, like there's always nuance in these areas that you can bring out. Mm -hmm. Oh, I really appreciate this conversation on on how we can help bust stereotypes because i think that's an area that that needs to be worked on in many many families because stereotypes are pervasive and they're handed down generation to generation isn't that correct exactly yes and actually we often don't even realize or kids don't realize that they are stereotypes and i think that's the first step actually is just helping name stereotypes and recognize them for what they are i think can bring them away from being just oh that's true you know mm -hmm. and realize that oh it is actually a stereotype because we don't always point them out when we hear them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay all right all of that makes a lot of sense and i feel like we can then apply it to gender we can apply it to race we can apply it to income status so that kids are busting all of those stereotypes and hopefully it's not always us prompting it it's them then 
able to generate it on their own and seeing the connection between these types of questions and all different types of biases and stereotypes. Is that correct? Exactly. Yes. And that's really the idea of this book in general is that all these conversations are meant perhaps to have more parent talk at the start just to get them started, but then are really meant to help jumpstart the child doing much more of this on their own. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a, a hot topic, and I mean it in it's a hot topic because it's talked about a lot right now, but also a hot topic because it's sensitive to uh, a lot of people. Um, now we've been talking more and more about LGBTQ. You talk about it in your book regarding, you know, biases and and stereotypes as well. And I am curious about how parents and educators now that a lot of people feel like can't be talking about this, they shouldn't be talking mm -hmm. about it. And then they get information that they should be talking right, about right. it. It's very confusing to them. How do we talk about some of those topics that perhaps are controversial in, in every way? They're sort of globally, people are mm -hmm. you know arguing about it, but right. also even within families, or communities they're arguing about it. How do we deal with those types of topics with our kids that that may feel very hot, hot to talk about? Yeah, so I think the key there is really to approach these conversations as you would approach other conversations about difference, which is really to start with a foundation of respect for the person that you're with. Um, and so it really, you know, doesn't matter kind of your, I mean, it obviously matters at some level, but no matter your feelings about a specific difference, what's really crucial is seeing the person in front of you and treating them and talking to them with respect. So to me, that means, for example, referring to a person with the pronouns that they want you to refer to them as. as. So that you don't necessarily have to say, you know, you need to do that because of X reason, it's really a more global question of, well, that's how we respect people is we talk about them. It's the same thing as someone's name. So you don't call someone a name that they ask not to be called, you know, that would be disrespectful. And so that's similar with the pronoun, you know, you don't call someone or at least you try not to call someone by a pronoun they don't want to be called. And if you do do that, and you recognize it's an error, then you repair it, you know, and so really kind of pulling back. And I think that can help parents and educators feel a little bit maybe more relaxed about these subjects that even though it definitely is a hot button topic, it's actually the same principles that go along all of these other subjects that might be a little bit less um, hot button topics um, in the sense that it really is about respect and about listening to the person in front of you and how they want to be interacted with. So it's interesting. I literally just got this message before getting on this interview with you. So a, uh, a somebody in a, in one of my parenting groups says, um, I'm in the car right now. And my husband and my son are currently arguing about whether transgender girls should be in sports. And they are arguing like full out They're <laughs> They're both have dug in to their arguments, mm -hmm. their side. And it's not getting anywhere. And she, of course, was like, please get me out of here right, right. now. Like, I just I can't listen to this for another minute. For sure. So when we're in a situation like that, it's a hot button topic. 
our kid is digging in, our one of the parents is digging in, now what? How do we get to a point where we're actually communicating and making progress so that there's an actual conversation happening, not just an argument? Yeah, so I think there's some key things to think about there. And, and the first I would say is that as the adult, um, you have the opportunity, even though I would not say it's always easy, but to be the person who isn't just going to keep digging in. <laughs> so mm -hmm. to be that person who's going to say, I'm going to pull back. I might not agree with you in any more than I did before, um, but I'm going to pull back and allow myself, for example, to ask some questions to understand your perspective better to let you explain yourself better and not to feel as if it's sort of a equal, I have to win or you have to win situation. Mm. Um, so I think that that is one thing that as the adult, it's really important to keep in mind that we might, you know, let our child say something we think is very wrong, but to be able to let them express why that is and to maybe gently offer them our interpretation of things can be far more effective than just engaging in this back and forth battle. Um, mm -hmm. So things like, oh, I'd like to understand how you came up with that idea. Could you tell me more about that? You know, or I don't agree with this part of what you're saying, but I see that both of us, you know, want everyone to feel like they're included in sports or like they're, that they're included in a community or something like that. So is there something you agree on, even if it's a very high level thing? even as you're disagreeing. So things like that, I think, can really support a conversation to start at least moving a little bit rather than feeling so stuck. Yes, and as I've done the work that I've done, and I imagine you have found this as well, that when we're going into a, a, a conversation like that, we, we shouldn't be going in to just prove our point. We should be going in to learn, right? To be able to be uh, swayed in some way. Otherwise, we're just basically giving a mental soliloquy, aren't we? Exactly. Yeah. So I think that if we are not in the, you know, in the mindset to move at all or to grow at all in the talk, it might be better just to shelve it at that point until we are. Um, because sometimes I, like everybody else, sometimes it is just, oh, I, I'm in a certain mood and I really want this <laughs> message to get across, you know. But, and that's, happens to everyone you know that's going to happen and so to recognize when that's happening and to say well let's just i think we're both getting a little heated here i'm having trouble you know seeing your point of view right now and it's really you know it's kind of i'm getting a little bit upset to really model for a child when it might be time to just take a little break and to return to it another time um i do also think though that um i had this conversation with uh, another parent you know who said well i i do think there are topics we need to talk about. And so I think it's fine also to even tell a child sort of in a more meta way, you know, I think this is an important discussion to be having and I want to have it with you, but I just don't feel like I can have it at this moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I think can be a really good message to send to a child also to say, you're not just shutting them down. You're not saying, you know, oh, I don't want to talk about it. Let's just be quiet. But you're saying that right now I'm not feeling kind of regulated enough to be able to have this conversation well. So I'm going to shelve it and let's maybe, let's talk about it at dinner. Let's talk about it at bedtime or something when we both feel a little bit, you know, we've had some space because uh, that mm -hmm. can really help. <laughs> I, I'm, I really appreciate what you're saying here 
because conversations, we need to be having them again and again, and we need to have small conversations, you know, building on one another. But at the same time, sometimes it's not the time to have that conversation. Sometimes it's not the time or place, you know, because your poor mother is sitting there listening to it and doesn't want to listen to us anymore. Exactly. You know, and we're in a car and she can't get out. Exactly. Um, and and sometimes it's it's really an issue with us. Like we're not ready to have a conversation. We need to shelve it. We want to do some research. I'm thinking like sex, drugs, alcohol, whatever that Mm -hmm. you need to do a little extra research. Maybe you weren't prepared for the conversation. And other times it's literally what you were saying that like, we're not regulated right now. I Mm -hmm. think that is so important. And I, I don't know that we've actually expressed that on this podcast that sometimes we're not in a position to have the conversation because we're not settled enough or we're finding that our child is getting so triggered that they may need some space as well and that we can actually schedule a time to talk about it again so that they don't feel like we're just pushing it off and ignoring it is that correct exactly yes i think that is so important and also to recognize that sometimes these conversations can feel out of control at one moment when they don't at all at another moment. So mm. I've had parents who say like, well, you wrote a book about conversation. Shouldn't we just be talking all the time? You know, and it's <laughs> like, well, no, I mean, sometimes like I'll wake up in the morning and my son has like playing his speak and spell computer, you know, thing. And it's like constantly, I don't know if you know that, but it's like, there's like spell laughter, mm-hmm. spell piano. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like, I, I right. cannot have, and my daughter's like, I want to talk to you about something that happened with my friend, you know? And you think like, no, I just, this is not the time. This is not the moment for yes. that to work. And yes. to even help kids recognize, you know, like, let's look at the situation. Let's listen. What are the keys that this is not going to work right now? You know? And so they see it alongside you that, you know, mm-hmm. this is, it's not that you don't want to talk, but yeah, look at the circumstances and let's find a time when it could work. Yes. So important. Excellent. Well, give us your top tip. What do you want people to come away with after listening to this podcast or reading your book? Yeah. So I definitely would say first that big or rich talk or rich conversations don't have to have as their subject matter, really big ideas. So you can have a really great conversation about you know, a gummy bear or about (laughs) something that fell in the garbage or, you know, you can really talk about um, lots of big ideas starting really small. And I'd also like to kind of change the paradigm a little bit from being always feeling like you need to direct or teach or advise to being more of a back and forth conversation partner. Um, So I think that kids really appreciate that. You can really get a lot more from kids when you're kind of having that more back and forth talk. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. And give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you, your book and the work you're doing? Definitely. Yes. Yeah. So you can go to my website, which is just um, www.rebeccaroland.com. Um, you can also, I have a weekly newsletter that you can sign up there for as well, where I give tips every week. Um, and I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. So the Twitter is Roland underscore RG and Instagram is Rebecca.G.Roland. And we will have all of those <laughs> links and all of your information on the show notes so that those of you who are driving or running, working out, you know, going from place to place. Don't worry about it. We got you covered. And I want to thank you so much, Rebecca, for your insights and your strategies. I I really appreciate what you've said here about really listening to our kids, allowing them to 
direct the conversation in many ways, asking questions, stepping back, getting perspective. All of these skills are really important for everyday conversations and also the big conversations. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I know you have yours, so let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. You can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash Dr. Robin. I'm also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. And if you love this podcast like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so other people can learn about Rebecca Rowland and all the great insights and strategies she provided today so that they can use them in their own homes. I truly appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please go to drrobinsilverman.com. There's so many great podcasts up there, and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget, there's always a time to try again. Parenting often provides us with moments to do it over. But on the same front, I'd just like you to step back for a moment and realize that now is the time. When you have the chance, take it. Don't keep putting it off. Now's the time to have these kinds of conversations, to engage in some of these skills. I see you and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices and our sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.